Kreusor. Hello and welcome to the CC4 Museum of Welsh Cricket Podcasts. I'm Stephen Hedges. If you lived near the Empire Variety Theatre in Finsbury Park, London, then the 17th of January 1921 may have been a red-letter day for you, as at the theatre that evening the stage magician P.T. Selbit became the first to perform the Sawing a Woman in Half illusion. Four days later, the full-length comedy drama The Kid Written, produced, directed and starring Charlie Chaplin was released in the USA. On February the 12th, the Red Army invaded Georgia and would soon proclaim the Georgian Soviet Republic. In sport, on March the 1st, the Australian cricket team captained by Warwick Armstrong became the first to complete a whitewash against the English tourists, winning the Test Series 5-0. Back in Britain, on February the 18th, the Advisory County Cricket Committee of the MCC recommended that Glamorgan be admitted to the county championship. This episode looks at the background to that decision. Later, we'll hear Dr Andrew Hignell of the Museum of Welsh Cricket lay out the cricketing background. But first, we welcome a special guest making his first appearance on our podcast. So we'd like to welcome to the podcast Professor of Modern History at Swansea University, Martin Johns, who's published several books about the history of Wales, including Wales since 1939, and uh, more recently, uh, Wales, England's Colony, question mark, which was the accompaniment to a BBC television series in 2019. Perhaps more interesting for us is his uh, A History of Sport in Wales, which was published back in 2005. Welcome to the podcast, Martin. Thank you very much. Can you set the scene a little bit for us? Tell us what was happening to Wales in the latter part of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century and what role sport played in all of that? I think there's two important kind of contextual points to, to, to think about, first of all, that, that sport plays into. Or, um, the first is that the economy is relatively buoyant. It's growing. Wales is at the industrial heart of, of the United Kingdom and, and the British Empire. Um, so Wales has a vibrant, prosperous economy. Of course, the profits aren't equally shared out and they're very much concentrated amongst the industrial owners but nonetheless the economy is vibrant it's growing it's creating work um, and people are moving into especially south wales um, into the coal field from both the countryside in wales and further afield so that's one important contextual point and the second is that this is also an era of a kind of a rediscovery or a reinvention of welshness there are people who are reading about the Welsh past, who are celebrating Welshness in song, in poetry. Um, They're producing Welsh language periodicals and newspapers. People are kind of projecting Welsh identity, if you like, to to the rest of Britain, but also to themselves. Welsh nationhood is being reinvented. It's been reinvented in a British context, Very few people are saying that there was any contradiction between being Welsh and being British. But Welsh identity, Welsh nationhood is becoming more confident. The Welsh were incredibly proud of their nationhood. And they were incredibly proud of being at the centre of the world's largest empire. And in some ways, imperialism and the empire facilitated this kind of rediscovery of Welshness. Because the British Empire was a plural concept. It was made up of different components. So Britishness itself was a very diverse identity. So what you've got in Wales is a vibrant economy. 
Um, and alongside that, a middle class who are rediscovering their roots, who are reinventing Welshness as a proud, vibrant identity. And that could only have happened with the wealth and the confidence that the economy generated. And sport is a byproduct of all of this. Growing communities need entertainment and sport gives them that. Building a football pitch, building a rugby pitch, building a cricket pitch requires some financial investment. And that was possible because there was wealth around at a local level. Um, and also because these communities are diverse and you know they're made up of people from across the United Kingdom and beyond, people are also keen to try and find ways of uniting them, giving them something to bond behind. Sport was a way of promoting both a local identity and a national identity as well. And it, you know, it is very much promoted by the middle classes as a way of binding these communities together. As the English and the Scots are starting to create national sporting institutions to play each other, the Welsh essentially say, well, we're a nation, we'll have some of that as well. And, you know, the creation of the Football Association of Wales and the Welsh Football Union, which becomes the Welsh Rugby Union, you know, are part of this process. Why do you think it is that rugby in particular becomes a significant part of that sense of Welshness, that Welsh identity? Well, I mean, there's two things to think about there. The, the, the first is that it is actually concentrated very much in the south. Rugby as a sport is not well known in, in North Wales in the 19th, in the late 19th and early 20th century. So in some ways, kind of saying rugby is the Welsh sport is a reflection of how much the south dominated images of Welshness. But it's also, I think, in this era because, well, it's really kind of in the early 20th century in that kind of first decade of the 20th century when this idea that there's something peculiarly Welsh about rugby really starts to take hold. And in many ways, that's to do with just how good Wales was at rugby at this time. Um, you know, in the Edwardian period, the Welsh national team is incredibly good. It's easily the best team within the British Isles, but in many ways, it's probably the best team in the world as well. Um, and in 1905, the New Zealand national side tours the British Isles and they, they hammer everybody. You know, they have an incredibly successful tour. And their last game is against Wales at Cardiff Arms Park. Um, and it becomes a cultural moment in Welsh history, if you like. And in some ways, the whole idea of Welsh, of rugby as this peculiarly Welsh thing can be traced back to that, to that game. You know, the Welsh defeat um, the New Zealanders. And what you see in that is some really over-the-top rhetoric in the newspapers of Wales. Um, they're portraying this as, as evidence of kind of Welsh racial superiority almost, you know, the, the racial valour of the Celt. Um, they're also portraying it as Wales upholding the honour of the British motherland against these kind of colonial upstarts. But it's also a very inclusive kind of Welshness as well, despite this kind of racial rhetoric around it, because some of the Welsh team were actually English migrants who moved to Wales to work in the coal industry. And, the, and why sport, I think, was so effective as a symbol of Welshness was it was symbolic. You just had to go to the game or even read about it in the newspapers. It didn't matter where you were from, didn't matter what class you were, didn't matter what language you spoke. You could just support the Welsh team and you could choose to be Welsh through doing so. So sport didn't demand anything of you um, in many ways. And it, it becomes this symbol of Welshness because every nation wants to feel good about itself. And that's what rugby gave the Welsh. It gave them something which said 
we're a nation on a par with everybody else. You know, we can hold our heads high. And for a small nation that's so often kind of marginalized and forgotten in other cultural realms, this really mattered. So this process of reinvention, is that brought to a halt in the First World War or does it continue in different ways? So the First World War isn't necessarily quite the break for individuals that it might seem. What is the break is what happens afterwards to the economy. Because the First World War turns upside down the global economy. It significantly damages um, the export markets of, of the Welsh coal industry. It also forces other countries to develop their own coal industries, um, you know, as coal trade is disrupted during the, during the war. So afterwards, although there is this brief post-war economic boom, you know, by 1921, it's it spent. Um, and it's really the economic depression of the 1920s and the 1930s that, 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 that kills off this vibrant, confident, arrogant, in some ways, Welshness that had existed before 1914. It's not the war, it's the economic dislocation afterwards. Was there anything in the development of sport in that period, immediately after the First World War and into the 1920s, that represented something new and, and, and changing for Wales? There is this brief economic boom after the First World War, as I said, and in it you do find a whole load of new sports clubs being set up. Um, it's in football you see it most clearly. You see you know, small professional clubs growing after the First World War, you know, small clubs like Bridgend and Midronda employing professional players on big money because they were outside the Football League. They could actually pay higher wages um, the Football League clubs could because the Football Leagues were um, had to obey a maximum wage rule. Welsh League clubs were exempt from that. So you find crazy things like Llanelli signing the Scotland captain. Um, you see clubs like Cardiff and Swansea and Newport County promoted um, to the Football League. So there's this brief sport boom, but it doesn't last. The economic realities of professional sport is that, you know, they were dependent on gate money. In some ways, sport outlasts the economic boom because in those kind of mid-20s period, you've got clubs actually doing quite well based upon the money they learn early on, if that makes sense. And they're able to reinvest that money and actually have quite a good team. Um, you know, Cardiff nearly win the first division in football in 1924. They get to the FA Cup final in 1925. People will pay money to go and watch a winning team. But gradually, the depth of unemployment, the scale of unemployment chips away at that. And every year, attendances get slightly less, even though clubs like Cardiff are doing relatively well. And as gates start to fall, the ability of a club to reinvest in its team falls away as well. Um, so by the time Cardiff win the FA Cup in 1927, in many ways, you know, the attendances are already in significant decline by then. The, the club is past its best. So Welsh sport doesn't fall at the rate that the, the economy falls, um, but it is in decline through the 1920s. And you see it in Welsh rugby as well. You know, you see it's more pronounced in Welsh rugby because it's an amateur sport and decent Welsh players you know, if they haven't got a job outside the game, what are they going to do? And many of them go north, they turn professional and join, and join rugby league. So whereas the Welsh national side had, had dominated today what we call the Six Nations, although there aren't Six Nations in it at this time, 
although they dominated that home championship before the First World War, in the 1920s and the 1930s, you know, they, they're just not, they're not in the running. The economy makes Welsh sport in the late Victorian period and, and the early 20th century, and it kills Welsh sport in some ways um, between, between the wars. So, Andrew, uh, how long had Glamorgan as a county been chasing the dream of first-class cricket? A very good question, Steve. Right from the outset, actually, because Glamorgan County Cricket Club were formed in July 1888. A meeting of all the, the great and the good of South Wales cricket took place in the Angel Hotel in Cardiff, the 6th of July, starting at six o'clock in the evening. The convener of the meeting was a very famous figure, both in sport and politics in South Wales, a man called John Talbot Dilwyn Llewellyn. He'd had a dream that uh, Glamorgan would be a force in county cricket. JTD Llewellyn was also the founding president of the Welsh Rugby Union. That had taken place at, at, at a meeting at the Castle Hotel in Neath in 1881. But he was really a cricket person, and he had the dream, as I say, that Glamorgan would be a proper county, would be able to hold their own against English counties. So at the meeting in 1888, it was resolved that Glamorgan County Cricket Club would be formed to be Wales's representatives in the county championship. He also rather intriguingly said, and also he would like the club to fly at a higher game. He was hinting there at hosting international cricket. Of course, it wasn't until uh, the Ashes Test of 2009 that international cricket, in terms of test match cricket, uh, came to Wales. Can you tell us a little bit about their experience in the minor county championship? Jack Brain, the managing director and chairman of Brain's Brewery, took over as captain. In the year 1900, under the captaincy of Jack Brain, Glamorgan were the joint winners of the Minor County Championship. They'd uh, played 14 games. They won eight of them. Then in the first decade of the 20th century, Glamorgan were runners-up on three separate occasions. You've mentioned JTD Llewellyn and Jack Brain. Who were the other key individuals in that period of Glamorgan's history that were assisting them in the quest for first-class cricket? There were some talented amateurs. There were some talented professionals as well. In the professional ranks, Billy Bancroft, possibly more famous for being a great fullback in the Welsh and in the Swansea rugby team. But Billy Bancroft became Glamorgan's first full-time professional in 1895 and he threw his lot in with Glamorgan up until the outbreak of the First World War. Two great bowlers as well, Harry Kraber and Jack Nash. Harry Kraber was also the groundsman at uh, St Helens, fantastic left arm spinner, although he was uh, ambidextrous and could also bowl with his right arm as well. And an off-spinner, who also was the groundsman at Cardiff, called Jack Nash. Both of those were the stalwarts of the Glamorgan bowling attack. In terms of the batting, Norman Riches, NVH Riches, uh, a dentist uh, by trade, 
and uh, someone who was the linchpin of the batting for Cardiff Cricket Club. Norman made his Glamorgan debut in the year 1900, and in fact, in the year 1911, he became the first ever batsman in the entire history of the Minor County Championship to score over a thousand runs. During that summer of 1911, he hit uh, four hundreds, including 217 not out against Dorset at Blandford Forum. The other talented amateur batsman of the uh, pre-First World War era was a man called Tal Whittington. To give him his full name, Thomas Aubrey Lation Whittington. Tal Whittington inherited his father's love of the game, and he also was an outstanding batsman in the minor county period, and twice represented the MCC on winter tours to the West Indies. So on the eve of the First World War, what, what do you think were the specific obstacles to Glamorgan becoming a first-class county? Well, the major obstacle was finance. Uh, Glamorgan's membership tally was not massive. They were entirely reliant on decent gate receipts. They were a club who also relied on handouts from patrons the club president at the time was a man called the Earl of Plymouth, Robert Windsor Clive, to give him his, uh, his full name. And the Earl of Plymouth was actually a, a huge benefactor in the Cardiff and in the Penarth and Barry area towards healthy recreation. His three sons all played for St Fagan's Cricket Club. And one of them, Archer Windsor Clive, also had attended Eton, and he was being tipped to be potentially a Glamorgan captain. Sadly, Archer Windsor Clive died in the Great War. In fact, he was one of the first uh, members of the British Expeditionary Force in August 1914, sadly to lose his life. But the downswing in the local economy in 1910, 1911, 1912, it hit Glamorgan really hard. They had begun a campaign, in fact, at the end of the 1909 season, after their success in for the third year running in being runners-up in the Minor County Championship, a campaign had begun with all sorts of uh, fundraising events, uh, Glamorgan in 1910 actually hosted matches against three first-class counties. And by that time, they also had decent facilities. In fact, if we just roll back the clock to the year 1902, it was in the summer of 1902 that Glamorgan had been awarded a game by combining with Monmouthshire against the 1902 Australians. So it was Glamorgan and Monmouthshire combined to play as South as to play as South Wales against the 1902 Australians. The the tourists did well, but there was a there was a crowd of about eleven thousand people at the Cardiff Arms Park to watch the game, and that spurred on the Glamorgan committee and. They secured again in 1905 another game against the Australians. In fact, in that year, they did also make a bid 
to host Test Match Cricket. It was pioneered, it was led by Jack Brain. They made an approach to the MCC, but they lost by just one vote to host the opening test of the 1905 Ashes series. That went instead to Trent Bridge, Nottingham, but Glamorgan were awarded again, as I say, a game as South Wales against the 1905 Australians. And on the back of their success the, in achieving these uh, games against touring teams, a large pavilion had been created as well at the Arms Park. So they had the infrastructure, they had the buildings, they had the personnel. What they just lacked was the money. And that was a major millstone around the necks of the Glamorgan officials, as I say, in the years leading up to the Great War. The, um, there was a great desire. Uh, there was a great passion as well. Wales becoming uh, a major sporting nation. Sporting historians look at that rugby victory against the 1905 All Blacks at uh, Cardiff Arms Park as being a defining moment, not only in sporting history in Wales, but Wales coming of age as a nation. There was a great mood of ambition and success as well within the business world. So why not uh, become a first-class cricket team? But of course, you had to meet the... Uh, guarantees that counties would have uh, levied. You would have, at the time, you needed to have eight home games and eight away games, a minimum of 16 matches against existing first-class teams. And before the Great War, that was not possible, simply because of a lack of money. So can you tell us how Glamorgan emerged uh, into playing cricket again after the war? and that period leading up to um, 1921? Stars from the pre-war era were no longer around. Several were also too old, Billy Bancroft being one of them, to, uh, to continue. But there was a mood that they didn't want that dream to wither and die. JTD Llewellyn was still there, very much the grand old man of Glamorgan cricket. And at their early committee meetings in 1919, high on the agenda was the question of first-class status. The finances, again, were still a little bit shaky, but the club decided in 1920 to make a bid and to approach the MCC. The man responsible for uh, making the bid was Tal Whittington. He agreed to actually have a sabbatical from his practice. So during the autumn of 1920, he made contact with a whole raft of existing first-class counties. He also had the, the financial backing because the one bit which had led to the decision by the Glamorgan Committee to approach the MCC was the fact that Sir Sidney Bias, the owner of the Margham Steelworks and also a generous patron to sport in South Wales, he'd given Glamorgan Cricket a loan of £1,000 over a 10-year period. And that was simply so that the match expenses could be met, the guarantees that the English counties were charging could be met, and also 
to uh, secure the uh, services of decent professionals. So with this nice little nest egg in the bag, Tal Whittington approached Somerset, Gloucestershire, Worcestershire, Derbyshire, Leicestershire, Hampshire, and Northamptonshire. All of them said yes. I gather that Middlesex and Surrey and Yorkshire were approached, but they said no. So with seven in the bag, Tal Whittington was told to go for broke, whatever the others want in terms of guarantees. He was told by the committee, just go for it. Well, as it happened, strong persuasion wasn't needed because Lancashire said yes, just before Christmas. And just after Christmas, Sussex also said yes. So there was great delight that Glamorgan actually had the promise of nine games at home as well as nine away from home. As I said, the minimum was eight. So the Glamorgan officials were able to approach the MCC's advisory county cricket group. They were basically the group who made all the decisions about the shape of the first-class domestic game during the season. And the MCC's advisory county cricket group met on the 18th of February, 1921. At the top of the agenda was Glamorgan's application. And I'm delighted to say that on the proposal of Henry Murray Anderton, who was the Honorary Secretary and President of Somerset, and the support as a seconder of Sir Russell Bencroft, the Hampshire Chairman, the group voted and they were unanimous that Glamorgan should be awarded first-class status. Let's not forget as well the backdrop within South Walian sporting society. At the time in 1920, the Football League was expanding as well, and uh, Newport County, Swansea Town and Cardiff City had all been successful, as well as uh, Merthyr and Aberdare, in joining the Football League. So it was a, a great time, and this momentum, this, this, this goodwill factor that was existing within sport in South Wales helped, I'm sure, to buoy on the Glamorgan officials. And as I say, there was great rejoicing on the evening of the 18th of February, 1921, when the, uh, the MCC's advisory county cricket group made that recommendation that Glamorgan should be awarded first-class status. And the formal approval came through shortly afterwards from the, MC, from the MCC and at Glamorgan's AGM on the 19th of March 1921 in the Grand Hotel in Cardiff, the letter from the MCC was formally read out to the people who were in the hotel. There was great applause, there was lots of back slapping and I gather there were tears in the eyes of JTD Llewellyn that his dream that Glamorgan one day would become a first-class county had actually seen fruition. History shows that Glamorgan won their first ever county championship match. Uh, the game started on the 18th of May 1921 and Glamorgan beat Sussex by 23 runs at the Arms Park. They won one further game 
beating Worcestershire at Swansea. But for the first three or four years, it wasn't a dream. It was an absolute nightmare. In 1922, the first 13 games were all lost, including six by an innings and plenty. And I think there were quite a few of the people who'd been the, the sceptics. They were saying, well, we told you so. Glamorgan don't have uh, the strength in depth. The captaincy had been, in 1921, had been undertaken by NVH Riches, Norman Riches, the Cardiff dentist. He uh, had always had the dream of playing in first-class cricket for Glamorgan. He achieved that, but then handed over the captaincy bat on to Tal Whittington. And he struggled. Um, he, he, his best years were well behind him. And unfortunately, there was no real blueprint for Glamorgan in those early years. They, they continued to exist very much as a... Uh, relying on amateur talent, a whole diverse range of quite colourful amateurs played. And of course, by using also uh, has-beens and people from English counties who weren't quite good enough, there wasn't that strong identity. So the gate receipts also were quite low. And that, of course, meant they couldn't hire and attract talented professional players. So there was a lot of scepticism and it took a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of, uh, f well, it was a huge leap of faith by the Glamorgan committee to stick to their guns and to say, yes, we will carry on. I suppose the success of Cardiff City and winning the FA Cup in 1927 helped to maintain that sense of purpose and pride within South Walian sport. But there were times when Glamorgan as a first-class county could have folded. It was only the likes of Johnny Clay and then later Morris Turnbull that really kept the club going. Many thanks to Martin and Andrew for their contributions to this special episode. As this coming cricket season represents the centenary of Glamorgan as a first-class county, there will be more podcasts highlighting the significant moments in that 100-year history, including a series of chats with ex-players, the highs and indeed the lows of the team, and the club's relationship to that all-important Welsh identity. Next week's regular episode will feature an interview with Swansea University lecturer Richard Thomas, who has written a soon-to-be-published book about the history of the game. So we look forward to having your company again, when we'll be sharing some stories about the great game of cricket in the great country of Wales. Oil valve, bye for now. What's the Dachi story you have any good any? Macrosechigasilti, ebosioch MWC pod nineteen twenty one at gmail dot com. Nate, I'll hint on Facebook, Museum of Welsh Cricket Podcast. Nate, hint on Twitter, at Welsh Cricket Pod. Do you have a story you'd like to share with us? If so, please contact email mwcpod1921 at gmail.com or go to our Facebook page, Museum of Welsh Cricket Podcast, or our Twitter, at Welsh Cricket Pod. <laughs>